Mindfulness Mode 176. From that tiny little act of service, I started to recognize that I still had something left to give. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mindful Tribe. Today is Christmas Day. Maybe you're celebrating or maybe not, but today's show is a beautiful message of joy from a beautiful person inside and out. She radiates peace, happiness, and calm through her voice and words. She has experienced trauma and challenges beyond what most of us can imagine. But even though she's paralyzed and wheelchair bound, she is filled with gratefulness every day. I think of this episode as a beautiful Christmas gift from a wonderful guest. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Relax and take complete pleasure in today's Mindfulness Mode interview. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited because I have Meg Johnson with us today. Hey, Meg, are you in mindfulness mode? Hi, Bruce. You know what? I really think that I am. (laughs) Meg Johnson is a wife, mother, a motivational speaker, an author, teacher, artist, and so much more. Meg was paralyzed in 2004 as the result of jumping off a cliff, an accidental decision which turned out to completely change her life in every way. Meg now inspires others across the world with her videos, her appearances, and written word. She has incredible energy, and man, she really knows her purpose. (laughs) So Meg, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, I've really been thinking about that. I've never actually tried to define that before, but mm-hmm. as I've been as I've been listening to different podcasts that you've had and and just kind of contemplating what it means to me, I really believe that for myself, mindfulness means realism, realistic. Like if I am if I am being realistic, then I feel like I'm very in tune with myself and what I have to offer and where my limits are and then what I can expect from the world around me and other people. And and I really feel like if I'm realistic, then I can still be I can be I can be multiple things at the same time. I can be paralyzed. I can be in a wheelchair. My hands don't have to work and I can still be really happy because the one doesn't have to affect the other. So is being realistic, is that a lot like being grounded to you, Meg? Yes, I I really feel like it is. And sometimes realistic kind of people want to be synonymous with pessimistic. You know, oh, Mm. you know, you're just so realistic. You're pessimistic. And they see it as the the opposite of optimistic um, when I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I just really feel like if I understand myself, And truly, my hands don't work and there's nothing that I can do about that. But that doesn't have to affect other things. No, it doesn't. I can still be really happy. I can still make out with my husband. I can still be (laughs) an awesome mom, like even with paralyzed hands, you know. This is a truth, but there's other truths and they don't have to affect each other. Well, I know one thing about you. When I watch you on video, when I see you, I just feel happy. I think I can feel your energy and I can, I just feel inspired. So what do you attribute that to? 
to my happiness. Yes, and and the fact that it seems to be conveyed so easily to others. I'm super religious, and so I I go to a higher power, you know, every single morning, and make sure I'm in line with that, and and I try to be grateful. And I really feel like if you start with basic first steps, like, uh, I mean, they've done some studies. People who look to a higher power tend to fare better through trials. And I've got trials. I mean, same as everyone else, but mine are pretty, you know, consistent. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not going anywhere. And right. so I'm constantly on the lookout for for things that um, make me happy because, I mean, I need it. Like, I want it. I want to be satisfied. I want to be happy. And so I found a, I found a few tricks that I do that, that seem to work for me. And I mean, I dare say they work for everybody. Well, could you share one of those with us, Meg? Yeah, I really feel like, um, like gratitude is the most basic first step of being happy because you know what, Bruce, like sometimes we just don't have the emotional power inside of us. We just don't have the spiritual capacity to, you know, grit our teeth and, and say, Oh, I can do this. I can handle this because sometimes we really just can't. Sometimes things are just really too hard. And so I really feel like no matter how hard our life is and no matter how challenging things are, we can start with that basic first step. Even if you can't use your legs, you can take the step of being grateful. And I, can I tell a little story? Yes, absolutely. I just wanted to share, um, when I first learned this in, in a really powerful, profound way. And, um, I was in the hospital and I'd just been paralyzed and I was in the respiratory ICU. I couldn't breathe by myself. I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I had tubes in my nose, tubes in my mouth, tubes out of each one of my lungs. It was draining the bloody fluid that my lungs were filling with. I had um, tubes in my arms, pick lines and and water lines. I mean, all of these things everywhere. And the doctors were so sure that I'd fallen so far and broken so many bones that certainly I had brain damage also. And so to stop me from pulling out the tubes that were everywhere, they tied my arms to the bed. Wow. (laughs) I know. And so the only thing that I could have moved was totally like immobile. And I woke up this one morning and well, I don't even know if it was morning, but you know, in the hospital, you're just Mm -hmm. in and out. Um, but I just woke up and I started to cry and the tears didn't have anywhere to go except for, you know, down the sides of my face and Mm -hmm. into the tape that was taping the tubes that were everywhere. And, um, I, and I, I just kind of shook my head, which I couldn't really do because I had that middle halo kind of screwed into my, into my scalp. And, um, I thought I just can't start my day like this. I just can't start my day like this. If I start my day like this, like it's not going to get any better, but I didn't know what to do. And so out of desperation for something to do, I, I, I opened my eyes and I was laying flat on my back. So of course I was staring straight at the ceiling and I just say in my heart, I just say a prayer. I say, heavenly father, please bless me with love for that ceiling. Mm -hmm. And I started to feel a little better. And then I looked out the window and I prayed for love for the window and then for the car that I saw and then for the empty visitor's chair and then for the television and the light switch and the bed and the blankets and the tubes. And I prayed for love for everything that I saw. And by the time, by the time I had prayed for love for everything that I'd seen, um, I was crying again 
Only I was crying because I was so happy. Like I had gone from being so sad to the point of tears to being so happy to the point of tears simply by loving everything that was around me. Um, it was crazy about that moment. This respiratory therapist came in to administer medications and, you know, fidget with the tubes and stuff. And it was really uncomfortable and borderline painful. And, but that day, even as she was working on me, I was just staring at her, just staring at her from underneath all the tubes and all the tape and all the stuff that was on me. I was just staring at her, you know, and I just needed her to know how good it felt to be me. Like, even though I couldn't walk and even though I couldn't breathe and even though, you know, fill in the blank, it just felt so good to be me. And I just attribute that to all of the love that I had for those things that were around me. And I really feel like that is a a, just such a basic first step of, of happiness is just being grateful for what's around you, whether or not it's quote unquote worthy of gratitude or, you know, whether or not other people have more and, you know, other people do have more. What are you going to do? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we don't have anything. <laughs> That is a beautiful story, Meg. That really is. And I want to ask you, did you have the incredible faith in the higher power before your accident as well, or did that come after it? And I just want to ask about the the higher power, if you can go into a little bit more detail. Oh, of course I will. Yeah. And I did have faith. Um, and, uh, you know, higher powers and, and people have different things. And I call, I, I believe in God, you know, heavenly father and, and that I'm, I'm his, spirit daughter. And that's what I believe in. I believed that before. And then I think I and everyone gets to kind of a, a point where they, where they question it when, when you think, Oh my gosh, well, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. And like, I believe that he can do all things. I believe he knows the beginning from the end, the front from the back, the inside from the out, you know, and if he knows all these things, surely he can fix things. He can stop these bad things from happening. So why doesn't he sometimes, why does he let these terrible things happen to us? And, um, if I may, I just want to share another little experience about that. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. Please do. Yeah. So I, I was laying, um, and this is when I came home from the hospital. So this is four months after I was paralyzed because I was in the hospital for about four months. And so I came home from the hospital. You know, I'm about five foot seven and I weighed 97 pounds. So really scrawny. And I didn't, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. You know, my brother came in and lifted me up and put me on my bed. And, mm-hmm. and I was just laying there on my back with my head on a pillow that had gone flat. So my chin was, you know, sticking into my chest and I was crying just those huge, you know, that ugly cry that like, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the beautiful cry where you just wipe some tears away, you know, but just the ugly cry. And I don't know what it is, Bruce, about crying, but you can cry so hard that you cry away all of the sound, but the tears just keep coming. And so I was doing that kind of silent, heaving, wet cry. And the tears were just going down into my ears. And and then they would spill out onto the pillow. And the pillow truly was so full of tears that when I turned my head to either side, like it squished. Like this is, this is, I mean, some things you just can't make up. Like this was truly a hard time. And I was praying and begging for Heavenly Father to take this away, to take this trial away, to fix me, to stop this. Like, I believe that he can. Right. Um, and I just, like, he wasn't doing it. <laughs> uh-huh. I, 
wanted him to, I just knew he could, and I didn't know why he wouldn't. Um, but I decided then just at that time that I needed to change my prayer. And sometimes we just have to do that because if we really do believe in a higher power, then we believe that he knows more than we do. And for some reason, me being paralyzed was requisite for whatever he wanted me to do in this life. And so instead of asking for Heavenly Father to heal me, I changed my prayer and instead I asked for him to hold me. And you know what? I, I, I really just didn't know at the time what I meant. Um, I just knew that I needed something stronger than peace or solace brought to my heart. I needed him to hold me at that moment. And I had said all of that in my heart, in my head, because I just plain didn't have the strength or the lung capacity to say that prayer out loud. But as soon as I closed that prayer, I heard footsteps coming down the hallway and the door to my room opened and my mom came inside and without saying anything, she just laid on the bed next to me and she put her arms around me and she held me just like I asked. Wow. Those are things that you just can't brush aside as coincidental. No. Wow. What a, what an impactful story, Meg. Wow. So Meg, take us to that day for our listeners who don't know you. What happened? Oh, the day that I was paralyzed? Yes. I went down to Southern Utah. I I haven't lived in Utah my whole life, and so it was my first trip, you know, to Southern Utah where the, the big arches are and the red rocks and the red yes. sand and the red dirt. It's, it's really pretty in postcards, but it's really pretty in real life. And I was spellbound with how beautiful everything was. And I went with my boyfriend at the time, and um, he went one way. We were out hiking on this little red rock path, and then he went one way to go watch some rock climbers, and I went the other way because there were all these boulders all in a row, and they weren't they were not like high off the ground. They were set really low in the ground, and there was lots of them squished together in this one area, and I was jumping on the tops of these boulders, jumping from one boulder to another boulder, to another boulder, until I saw this one last boulder and I jumped for it. Mm -hmm. And on accident, I just jumped off a cliff. Right. The wow. terrain there is so beautiful, but it I didn't understand that it just kind of blends together. And so what looked to me to be a bunch of boulders was actually a bunch of mountaintops. And so I just accidentally jumped off this cliff and fell. Um, about 45 feet to the ground. I jumped off the rock in St. George called Turtle Rock. And um, I landed on hands and knees. They think, that's what the doctors think. Because um, I broke both my arms and both my legs, my collarbone and four bones in my neck. And then they flew me to the hospital and I was pronounced a quadriplegic paralyzed from my chest down without the use of my hands. Wow. And so tell me about the first few days when you had to deal with, with that announcement. Well, you know what? It was the doctor. My parents begged the doctors not to tell me that I was paralyzed. Oh. And so, um, but they, the doctors didn't listen to them because I was 22 and I was an adult. And so they can't, I mean, they had to tell me. Just sure, <laughs> sure. And so the doctors came in and he said, you know, you're paralyzed. And I just responded right back. I said, I don't believe in being paralyzed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I mean... 
I recall saying this. Um, and at the time I, I meant, I don't believe, you know, that you can't fix this. I don't believe that this is permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a long, in a long term, you know, now that it's been almost goodness, 13 years, um, there's nothing I can say, like realistically back to mindfulness, <laughs> mm-hmm. I am paralyzed, but I don't have to act in such a way that I'm still, I don't have to, my, like my legs don't work, but I, I don't have to pretend like I can't put one foot in front of the other. You know, I can still continue on in my life. I have a little motto that I, that I've just, you know, discovered through years of being in a wheelchair and, um, it's a little platform, I guess, so to speak, but it's when life gets too hard to stand, just keep on rolling because we can still keep going. We can still get whatever we wanted to get done, done. And you know what, when it comes to everyone having a purpose in this life and something to offer, um, I think sometimes people get caught up in their offerings being synonymous with their strengths and with their talents. And you know what? That's not untrue. That's true. Our strengths and our talents are, are truly things that we have to offer people. However, um, trials and challenges and hindrances and obstacles are no less valuable when it comes to what we have to offer somebody else. Because really that's what gives us a unique perspective, a unique outlook, um, different different, even different strengths. These, these challenges offer us different strengths if we let them. I mean, we could really see these challenges and trials as simply for our own growth and our own benefit. And that's a really selfish way to think about them because, and that's really, um, discouraging too. Like, Oh, I guess I have to learn patience and Oh, I guess I have to learn this for myself and this for myself. And, and you know what, that's true. And we should really learn from things, um, for ourselves. But I'm, I'm still valuable to other people, not in spite of being wheelchair bound, but because of it. And I have seen opportunities for me to serve others because I am in a wheelchair, not in spite of that. Well, it's just amazing how you have helped others. Tell me some of the first ways you began to help others after you came to this realization. Well, I started, um, I... (sighs) Like I'm a motivational speaker. I I wish that I could tell you that I was amazing from the get go, you know, (laughs) that I came home from the hospital and just tore it up, you know, but I, I didn't, I came home from the hospital and I was so sad and morose Mm. and bummed. I mean, my mom would get me up and she would dress me and she would brush my teeth and she would feed me breakfast. And then she would put me on the back porch and that's where I stayed every single day for a couple of weeks. And, um, I was just, people would try, people would try Mm -hmm. to come over and, you know, encourage me and lift me up and, and, you know, whatever, but they couldn't because I wouldn't let them. Right. And you know what, no matter how hard someone tries, if you don't let them, they're not going to be able to be successful in, you know, uplifting us. That's just how it is. And so I decided that the only person who could really save me was myself, but I really didn't know what to do. And I just recalled, um, a a quote that I'd heard, you know, um, that the hardest thing that you can do to somebody is to take away their work because then they can't stop to rest. And I just knew, I said, I just need something to do. I need some work to do. I, I was not in college. I had to drop out of the semester. I wasn't dancing anymore. I wasn't dating anymore. My boyfriend had, you know, broken up with me. Mm. 
And so I asked my mom to push me down to a local elementary school and I asked the principal if I could volunteer and um, the principal put me with Mrs. Smith's second grade class and I sat outside the door with a little chair next to me and kids would come out one at a time and they'd read their library book to me and I was their cheerleader. I'd be like, oh, you're doing such a good job. <laughs> and I know that um, my little service there was really small and, you know, seemingly meaningless and, and probably inconsequential to them. But it was none of those things to me. From that tiny little act of service, I started to recognize that I still had something left to give. I still had someone left to be. I still had something left to do. And um, let's see, there's a quote. I think it's Albert Einstein, but he said, a person starts to live when he can live outside himself. And when I started to live outside myself and and serve these kids, you know, I, I did. I started to live. I started to love my little ragdoll body in a wheelchair. I joined the real, the wheelchair rugby team, you know, in Utah. And yes. I was, I was one of five girls nationwide who played. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was not good, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I had a really good time. And then I heard about the Miss Wheelchair America pageant in New York. And so I went there and, and you go with a little, kind of a one sentence description of who you are and what you're all about to Miss Wheelchair America. And what I chose to bring with me was creating a new reality through service. And I, I really felt like I had a new reality being in a wheelchair and, um, and it could be a wonderful, beautiful new reality. Um, if I started to serve others and if I stopped looking inward and if I stopped trying to analyze myself and figure out, Oh, what do I need? How can I get better? What can I do with this? But no, as I turned my focus on those second graders, um, I started to see myself as I stopped looking for me. You started to see yourself when you stopped looking for me. Wow, that's really powerful. And now you help so many others and and you you do these the speaking and tell me some of the interesting places you've been where you you went to speak. Oh, well, I I do quite a lot around Utah and the surrounding states. Um and I I do a lot of religious stuff and I do a lot of business stuff and I do a lot of school stuff and um I I've just it's so wonderful. Like I, I'm really just a storyteller. Like I'll tell different experiences that have happened to me and then people can just take from that, you know, what it is that they need, mm -hmm. um, to, to help them in their lives. And I just have so many stories to share and, you know, Bruce, my funniest stories and the ones that people like the best happen to be the most difficult experiences that I've been through. Um, just the hardest ones. And so when I go and I share all of my stories with whoever, and then afterwards, you know, I, I kind of sit in my car and I think about that particular unique speech, because each one of them is pretty unique. You know, different stories mm -hmm. seem to come out for different audiences. Sure. Um, and I just sit in my car and I think, man, if I had to be paralyzed and if I had to have, you know, if I had to fall out of my car into the rain and if I had to be dumped all of those times and if I had to be kicked out of Germany and all of these things are real but if I had to go through all of those experiences just so I could share all of those things with this one particular audience then it was worth it it was worth it all of those things were worth it so that I could help these 600 people accomplish whatever hardship they're enduring in their life right now then it was worth it. And I love feeling that way after, after speeches. 
So I've been everywhere from Florida to Alaska and I'm going to Hawaii next year. And, and I'm very careful with preparing myself and, and being ready to speak to each different audience because they are different. Um, because I want to have that experience every time where afterwards I sit alone and I often am sitting in my car, but if I don't have my car, then I'll just hide in the bathroom and <laughs> I'll just ponder on that speech. And I always want to feel like those experiences were worth it so that I could share it with those people. And I'm sure, sure, it's totally worth it, the way you're just so inspiring. And, you know, I mean, I watched you open a box of pudding on the on a video, and I thought, wow, I'm inspired, because you just seem so joyful, and you just stuck with it, stuck with it, stuck with it, and you explained how to do it if you can't use your hands. And that's not an easy thing to do, is to open a box of pudding, is it? You know, it's it's one of the harder boxes. That's true. <laughs> they really want you to work for your pudding. <laughs> wow. Now, when you think back to your childhood, Meg, do you think of yourself back then as a mindful person? What what kind of a kid were you? Um. Oh, that's kind of a fun question. My mom was actually just telling me that um, when I was when I was very young, like you know, two ish, three ish. Mm-hmm that I was just sitting all by myself and I was combing a Barbie's hair and I was just, I mean, my mom said I always had this furrowed brow, always, you know, this furrowed brow. And so I'm combing this Barbie's hair, you know, with my furrowed brow and my mom's friend was visiting and and they were both just watching me. And my mom's friend says about me, she says, you know what, we need to keep in touch because you need to tell me what she becomes (laughs) because I was such an interesting kid. I guess I was super focused. So wow, I don't, intense. I guess. And I've got a daughter. I've got a three-year-old who's always got a furrowed brow, and she's pretty intense, too. Does she? And what are some of her favorite things? Oh, goodness. Well, she loves princesses, and mm. she loves... Oh, she's a speller. Oh, my gosh. She didn't talk till she was about a year and a half. And um, but she said her name on New Year's Eve, and then she spelled her name on June 3rd. I mean, January 3rd. Oh, wow. And so I was like, what? Who is this child? (laughs) That's amazing. So she's a pretty, she likes letters and she's a good, she's a good girl. Wow. Wow. She must be a lot of fun. She is. And I think, I mean, it's really special to be a mom in a wheelchair. I mean, it's special to be a mom, period. But, you know, I feel like such a crummy mom sometimes because I am in a wheelchair. However... Um, it's because I'm in a wheelchair that she does certain things that I think other children don't like, I mean, she's just, she'll be three at the end of October, but I mean, she was just two years old and she was starting to do full loads of laundry all by herself. And she'll come up to me and she'll say, Oh mama, your, your feet, you know? And so she'll fix my feet on my wheelchair (laughs) and she'll get the door for me and she'll get the door for other people. And she's just a little thing. Aww. So That's she's beautiful. So my disabilities um, are rough, and I wish you know. And when you can't really wish because you just you just can't. Mm-hmm. But it would be nice, you know, if I was if I could walk. And I, I I would be lying to you if I didn't think that every once in a while, like oh man, I sure wish that I could walk because when my baby cries at night, it sure would be nice to just hop up and run to her. Um, but and so that's hard. But however. It's because of my disabilities that are making way 
for her to grow and for her abilities to start to show at such a young age. And it will be interesting to know what she does with her life, just as it was interesting to know about you. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Meg, I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, and I've seen how mindfulness can really make a huge difference in the lives of children or adults who have been bullied. Do you have a story about bullying, maybe whether you were bullied or someone you know, where mindfulness would have made a difference? Oh, you know, I really wish that I didn't. I wish that I didn't mm. have any stories. Mm. Um, and that's kind of tough. And, and I, I do have one tiny story from high school, you know, that I took care of it because I was, I was a pretty tough high school kid. Mm. Um, but I think maybe something that we don't really think about maybe as often is adult bullying, um, that happens. And, and, you know, I walked for 22 years and so I made it a little bit into adulthood walking and, and I know what it feels like for people to get the door for you because you're pretty and you know, you, that's just how it is. And then after I was paralyzed, people got the door for me for an entirely different reason. Um, people don't see me as pretty initially. They see the wheelchair and I understand that that's okay. Um, but I, I do recognize that I'm treated differently, um, by adults Children, I mean, children are pretty much interested in everybody, so that's that's not too much of a hardship at all. Um, but adults are a little bit hard on people in wheelchairs. Not all of them. Please, please know that I'm not talking about everybody. Um, but I, I will share that, and this is just one experience, and I have many, and it just comes with the wheels. I mean, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. But I went to a big church function. It was a really big Christian church function. And, um, and it was at a big event center that they have basketball games in and stuff. It was really big. And so I went there and I was trying to find a seat, but all of the wheelchair sections were taken. Mm -hmm. Um, people in wheelchairs and their, their companions and stuff, and they were all just taken. And so I couldn't find a place to sit. Um, which is unusual because I brought my own chair and everything. (laughs) (laughs) And then my husband asked if, if he could carry me to a seat that was a little bit higher. And they told him no, that they couldn't, that he couldn't carry me to another seat. And so then we went outside to a, to a place that we knew just went to the ground level. And it was more for like the elite people, you know, only the elite people can go oh. here. But we were taking a chance because like we really wanted to, to be at this giant Christian thing. And we couldn't, we couldn't sit with the masses of people. And so we went around and, um, the lady that was guarding the door, she, she just said, no, she said, nope, you can't come in. You know, we're not going to let you in. And we tried to explain to her that they wouldn't let us be carried to another seat and that I couldn't find a seat up there and we'd already been. And she just said no. And, and she, um, she blamed it on, on it being too late that all of the dignitaries and stuff were already in there. And, um, and so they, they had to close it off so that no one else could go in because it was a safety issue. And so we're like, okay, we kind of understand that. And so we were leaving. And as we were leaving, we watched her let someone else in who, you know, of course had arrived late also. And so it was just this. Wow. 
hard. It was really, you know, and even at a Christian thing, I mean, you just expect more from them. You just do. Whether right. that's good or whether that's bad, you just expect more from people like that. And um, so we ended up, we, we just weren't, we were not able to go. We just were not able to go. And um, that just happens every once in a while, you know, someone will try to, to bring you down because you're in a wheelchair because that just happens. I mean, I don't know what you can say about it, but I think when you ask the question in terms of mindfulness, how would mindfulness help? Um, it to, and my definition and something that I've been pondering is that I really feel like it's realistic and realistically, um, she just doesn't understand. She just didn't understand like what, you know, how powerful her actions were at that moment. She just didn't get it. And maybe someday she'll have an experience where she really will understand just how powerful those actions were. But, you know, because she didn't understand, she was being mean ignorantly. Um, and you know what, then that's, you just have to be not just mindful of yourself, but mindful of other people too. And, and, you know, as much as we try to excuse ourselves, we should try equally as hard and I should try equally as hard to excuse other people because they just don't understand. And the people who wouldn't let my husband carry me to a seat, they just didn't understand. And the people who were sitting in the wheelchair section who really didn't need to be, they, they just didn't understand. So, and if people just don't understand, then you can't blame them that hard because they just don't understand. Yeah, that makes sense. Everybody is in a different place. Everybody is, you know, we, we can't even really sometimes imagine what the place is that they're in. But I, I hear you. And it must have been so disconcerting to have that experience, Meg. Meg, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? One person who's influenced my mindfulness practice, as I, I told you before, and I'll, I'll say it again, is I just look to that higher power and I believe in Jesus Christ. And um, I I read the Bible and the stories that happen to him um, and the way that he serves others just so selflessly. And there's never an instance in the Bible where he served himself. And I really feel like he knew exactly who he was because he served um other people so well. He saw himself by searching for others. And yes. that's, that's how I want to be. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Meg? It helps me to keep, keep them reined in um, because sometimes I'd like to be a little bit hot-tempered, um, but I just have to take a step back and understand that people just don't understand sometimes and that I really do have limits on myself and I really do have strengths. And so when I focus on my strengths and, and really focus on my limits too, like, okay, this is as far as I can go, um, then I don't get upset when I don't have more to offer because I've, I already know that I have given everything I can and I can be satisfied with that. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Um, you know what? That's a good question because breathing is a struggle for me. I, um, I have really small lung capacity mm -hmm. and... So uh, that's a really good question because when I do get upset, I like to go outside and take deep breaths because the fresh air seems a little bit easier 
to slow down my breathing so that I can, you know, gulp some more air and, and calm down. So that does help me. Good. If you could recommend a book related to this topic, what book would that be? Oh, goodness. I, I would recommend, I mean, believer or non-believer or higher power of, of any denomination or faith, I would recommend um, the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and just those stories of Jesus and how he how he focuses on others just so much. And, um, even if, even if it's a little bit of a stretch to believe, I think that that particular pattern is so helpful through trials and for ourselves. So can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Um, you know what? I, (laughs) no, (laughs) I don't really have an app. I have a a smartphone and I have all of those fancy things available to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm a mom. And so (laughs) I don't, I mean, maybe I could say that that little bubble game where you pop the bubbles, that's, that helps me, that helps me calm down because I could just give it to my daughter and, (laughs) and then I can make dinner. (laughs) Well, that reminds me of someone who said, yes, the off button on my phone, (laughs) that would be the app. (laughs) Right. That's, that's probably a really good button. Yeah. No, I don't, I'm not very technologically, um, you know, into it. Sure. Sure. So, you know, it has been really, really interesting and exciting to have you on the show and you're, you're just so inspirational and, and you just seem to keep moving. You've got so much energy and you keep creating videos and, and, doing your blogging and so on. And so it's just so exciting. How can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do? Oh, well, that's a, thank you for asking. I would love to meet the Mindful Tribe. I would love to meet anyone who, who would love to meet me. And so I have a website. It's megjohnsonspeaks.com. Um, and then I have a blog on there. There's videos on there. I have a podcast. Um, there's there's just all, you know, just little things on there. And I would love to hear from you. I have a newsletter, Meg's Monthly Message. It's read all around the world. And um, I'd love for any of your listeners who would love um, that to sign up. It's I send it out the first weekend of each month. And it is simply one story. It's a true story because all of my stories are are true. <laughs> so it's one true story from my life specifically to help other people in theirs. So that's all it is. Just the newsletter is just one story and they just get it in their inbox. So I'd love it if they would love to hear from me like that. And I'd love to hear from them too. That's great, Meg. Well, it's, it's wonderful hearing your stories today and we can continue on hearing your stories every month. So thanks so much and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Bruce, for having me on. This has been so enjoyable. I, I loved it. Wonderful. Thanks. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.